0: Welcome to Don't Eat Your Young, a nursing podcast with your host, Beth Quas. Before we get started, we have a few quick notes. Don't Eat Your Young is a listener-supported podcast. To learn more about becoming a member and the perks available to you for becoming a patron yourself, visit patreon.com slash don'teatyouryoung. You can learn more about the show, share your story to join Beth as a guest, or connect with our wonderful community in our Facebook group. You can find all those links and more at don'teatyouryoung.com. And now, on with the show.
1: Hello and welcome to Don't Eat Your Young. I'm your host, Beth Quass. Today on the show, we have John Silver. He's been an RN for several decades. He's gone from an associate degree in nursing to a PhD in comparative studies. John is dedicated to improving healthcare systems and empowering nurses to lead the charge. Welcome, John. It's so nice to have you today.
2: It's a real pleasure to be here, Beth. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your nursing career. Well, you know, I'm old, so it's a long story. But I started in healthcare in 1974, a um, bunch of little jobs, working my way up, respiratory therapist, 78, and then 84 as a nurse. Uh, it's pretty much minding my own business. I was working agency, ICU, nights, Um uh, not really involved in politics or or anything, and then in the kind of late nineties, I decided that's yeah, my career. I should probably go back and get a bachelor's. Uh, so I started looking, you know, at schools. Went to Florida Atlantic University. Met all kinds of nurses coming back for their bachelors, and they were all complaining of the same thing they had been complaining about twenty years ago when I you know got into healthcare and I started thinking, hey, you know, why can't we solve our own problems as a profession? That's very troubling. As I went into my master's, I decided it was politics. So I did kind of a political MSN. um, And they let me go up and do some work with George Mason's University's uh, Health Policy Institute in D.C. I did two internships in Congress. Uh, I came down and worked with a rep in Florida for a while. Um, So I kind of thought it was an image problem. So I did a master's thesis on proactive media utilization. Um, After the master's, Uh, I'd started publicly speaking about healthcare and nursing. Uh, So the choice was, do I do the NP route, which probably would have been smarter and more financially rewarding, uh, or do I do the PhD route? So I decided I wanted to step out of healthcare completely and look back at healthcare from my PhDs in comparative studies. So it allowed me to use a lot of disciplines to look back uh, at healthcare historically, structurally, everything. Uh, and I started working on two threads, which is, you know, how can we fix this problem with nursing where we get back in control of our practice to me? And then how do we fix this health care system? Because it was pretty obvious, even by that time, this thing was a mess. Uh, I call it the disease care system because that's what it is. That's right. And so I started going, you know, working those two threads, which I found out eventually merge into kind of one thing, because if we're not empowered as a profession, how do we advocate for the healthcare system design we need to take care of our patients and also protect ourselves? Um, so I started looking at health system design, um, went to uh, Argentina, studied their system, I uh, gave a talk to a design conference in Berlin, talked to nurses, doctors, and people in the street about their system. I uh, went back two years later in Cardiff, Wales, to the first STTI convention where I met nurses from all over Europe. Um, so one of my first goals when I started looking at this problem was to set up what are the goals of a healthcare system? I mean, if you don't know where you're trying to go, how do you know? what to do to get there. And how can you evaluate what you're doing? Right. You know, how would you ever know if you were successful, for example? Right. Um, So I started uh, following that that thread of writing the goals. So once I had the goals, I put all the system designs I could find around the world on the table. And it turned out none of them met all seven goals. And turns out our system didn't make any of the goals. Wow. So then I started rethinking healthcare. Um, and that led me to the development of this public utility model.
1: Which was fascinating to me. Talk a little bit about that public utility model.
2: When I found myself with no systems that met all the goals that I could advocate for, I actually, I went back and I explored U.S. history. And I was looking for something that happened where something was emerging or had emerged that was, we didn't want to call it a right. But it was too important socially and structurally to be called just a commodity. And I found the electrical issue in the 20s, so I studied back through the history of that, going back to the natural monopoly stuff in England. I know this is all boring. Um, And I looked at what um, FDR had done with the creation of this public utility. And the public utility was really, if you think about it, water, transportation, electricity. These are all things that are vital to the success of the country that everybody should have a right to have access to. And yet we don't want to just fund it publicly with tax money. So healthcare had a lot of the same issues as the electrical issue in the 20s, where, you know, bad distribution of resources, multiple LLCs, sucking money out of it, charging whatever they felt, running into some neighborhoods but not others, abandoning the rural communities. So there were a lot of similarities to it. So I put the public utility model on the table and I found out if I change two of the variables, uh, how it's financed and how it's administered, that this public utility model takes the innovation of healthcare right down to the street level in every community. So it's really going to unleash, for example, um, NP innovation um, in what I think is the specialty of nursing, which is how to deliver health services. So if we can unleash that power, and it's something we have that hardly any place in the world has but us, is this uh, layer of providers who are still mission-focused by their profession, nursing, um, but also incredibly innovative in how they reach out. And, you know, this all goes back to our history, too, the Lillian Wald vision of nursing, for example. So it's the thread that kind of connects our core, our our moral center as a profession, and then allows it, which it can't do now in this innovation, in this system, uh, to just kind of explode into communities.
1: As I read uh, your work, my mind was racing on, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense. Look at the things we can do. We can get out in the communities. And like you said, instead of the disease system, we can... Go out and do preventative health care. That's what we do. Public health nursing, let's blow that up. Let's get out into the communities. I was amazed.
2: You know, I like I know public health has been doing this and public health employs nurses. Um, but the question I ask public health people is, okay, you've been doing these community assessments for what, 40, 50 years? We have not met one goal from healthy people two thousand. So how successful is your process, which is uses primarily the medical model of assessment of a community? I want to go in and use nursing models like Gene Watson's community assessment for caring, um, tying in uh, Callista Roy's adaptation, because communities adapt. I don't want to know what their resilience is. I want to know how they've adapted to this bad health and then or the contributors to bad health in their communities. And then figure out how we can work together to um, improve that. I think that makes more sense.
1: Absolutely. What you said resilience, let's get rid of resilience. Let's not have people get to a point where they have to be. Let's keep them healthy, get them healthy, and work forward from there. Yeah. I, that is, that's, I love that you said that because resilience means that you've gotten somewhere you don't want to be.
2: Yeah. And you can just withstand it, right? And then you know the other advantage of this model is you've got these NPs and, and regular RNs. I mean, it's not like it all has to be NPs in these communities, collecting real-time data on living conditions, on smeltering plants, or pollutant, you know, pollutions in the water, whatever the issue is It's contributing to in other words, the social determinants of health. And being able to relay that information back to your partner in managing these regional zones, public health, EMS the government, and start addressing these social and also, I mean, there are limits to what a healthcare system can do, um, but also bringing attention and focus to the economic problems that cause disease. It kind of broadens the scope of what a health system should be, which is both prevention, monitoring, and then treatment.
1: Imagine this smaller size of hospitals that we would need if we had less patients in them because they're a healthier population.
2: And that should be our goal, right? Yeah. I mean, it's naive to think that there are never going to be any healthcare problems. Um, There's so many things we don't understand that happen just sporadically through people's lives. We can't predict any of this. You can't, which is why insurance to me is just uh, idiocy. You know, there's no predictability. Healthcare is not a free market issue. There's no predictability whatsoever in healthcare. Correct. So why are we treating it like there is?
1: When I read your stuff on insurance and why we're paying and what it's doing for us, again, my mind started racing. That is exactly right. Why are we doing it that way? Why are we ensuring unpredictability? Tell me why. Tell me more about the insurance
2: companies. You know, if you go back to the 40s, 30s, and 40s, there were very isolated health insurance things. Most of those were kind of union-based. And then, of course, the you know, upper echelon had, didn't have to worry too much about it. Um, but medicine was kind of exploding at that time. A lot of new technologies were coming out. Um, the Eisenhower built uh, or helped build and Truman the hospital system across the country Uh, So there was a lot of progress being made. The problem was doctors didn't want to take chickens as payments anymore. (laughs) So they wanted money. And especially as the specialists evolved in the 60s with uh, the ICUs and all that stuff, um, they found out that you you can pretty much charge what you want. Nobody really knows how much it costs to do a surgery. Um, So we can just, that door just got opened up, but they had to have people be able to pay it. So that required this insurance system to recompense the uh, medical teams and the hospitals.
1: Yeah, we've been talking about transparency for years. Um, If I'm a patient and I'm going to have surgery, I can't go in and get a quote on what it's going to cost. No one seems to be able to tell me what it would cost. So how can I comparison shop then if no one can give me an answer?
2: Yeah, and... and you know, all this stuff about price transparency anyway, I mean, that may be great if you're having an elective surgery on your shoulder um, that you could price around. But really, that's not the way it works. Right. Usually you're tied into a doctor, a surgeon, an orthopedist that's been treating you, now recommends the surgery. You typically go where he has privileges or she has privileges so you can get that service done. Um, the other type of health care is you're acutely ill. So you know you're vomiting, you got diarrhea, your head's hurting, your blood pressure's way up. You're not sitting there going through calling hospitals to say, "Hey, um, if I come into your emergency room, how much is this going to cost right. you know, Or if you call 911, they're not going to sit there and say, well, you know, it costs $1,200 if I take you to this hospital, but only 300 if I, I mean, none of that stuff goes. Back.
1: Well, and truly um, in insurance policy, it might as well be Greek to me because trying to read and understand, and I work in healthcare, so I understand a lot of the jargon, but for most people, how do you even understand what your insurance is going to cover?
2: Yeah. So I think the big breakthrough is, uh, I told you, I started having to rethink healthcare. And if you stop thinking of healthcare as 428 million individual billable interactions with providers, and you think of healthcare as services that are delivered to a community, that could also operate under a general budget, would not have to be individually um, paid for and billed for. And um, so, in other words, you know, for example, open heart surgery would be a service that's available to the community for people that need it. But I know how much it costs for open heart surgery. I have an idea how many we do a year. I can budget for that. So that that was kind of the revolution, I think, in allowing this public utility model um, to develop as a solution.
1: And where would that budget come from?
2: In healthcare to me, everybody has uh, skin in the game. So healthcare is a national uh, defense issue. Uh, we saw that after 9-11 when something like 60, 65% of the applicants for the military force, uh, were denied because of healthcare reasons, obesity, hypertension, all, all these problems we have. Um, it's also of great concern to states. Remember, we live in a federal system, so it has, you have to respect state rights in this. Uh, it's a critical issue for states. It's a critical issue for businesses because look how much money is lost in productivity because of health care and chronic conditions in this country. Um it's also a responsibility of individuals. So I think the best solution, since I don't believe in single payer, and the reason I don't is because of an old quote, I'm afraid, which is, you know, he who pays the fiddler calls the tune. <laughs> so right now we're in a situation where insurance companies are able to deny services. Do we want the government being able to deny services, and do we want the government collecting our healthcare data? And I say no to both of those. So this is kind of, again, that middle-of-the-road solution. So all of us have skim in the game. All of us pay. How you would pay would be you maybe get a utility bill once a month, and it's gas and electricity and water and healthcare, and you're paying, you know, 50 bucks a month. Um, and you never have to worry about it. You're completely covered no matter what you need so if businesses pay, if cities pay, if towns pay, if counties and states pay and the federal government pays, they're going to pay a lot less than they're paying now. Uh, most states, the health care budget's around 20% of their budget. If we could drop that to 10%, that's a huge savings for the state. When I did the, I, can, I actually stopped my doctorate for two years to go to Tulane for an MB, uh, MBAC so I could understand this macro finance world. If you do this model and implement this model. What I showed so far was about a forty-two percent drop in healthcare costs in the country. Wow! I mean, that's pretty significant. That's very substantial, and and yet it still accomplishes the task of the, the the large task of Medicare for all, and then everybody gets covered. But it's not my tax money paying for it; it's all of us together as a collective.
1: That's incredible, and I know you talk some about who would sit on the board, if you want to call it, who would be the overseer of that? And you have listed all kinds of different professions in there and areas of expertise.
2: So the idea to me is to have a um, central council in New York. Um, their ba- their basic function is to interact with NIH and CDC and HHS, but not be under government control. The, that that council would not be appointed by presidents or Congress. Um, They'd be elected by the state regions. And then to respect the federal system, the actual system delivery would be in the state, and they would set up regional systems in the state that include all geographic areas, rural, urban, and uh, suburban, so that that health regional council would have a holistic view of health um, throughout, All of the areas not be able to just focus on, you know, one, one area, for example. So yes, all the providers would be at the table of this, but I would put chairs, the, the chair is nursing. I totally agree. Well, you know, it's the only profession that really has that other focus. Um, the one thing you can say about nursing is we're not exactly greedy. Right. You know, we're very mission driven. Uh, medicine has a lot of self-interest in it. We should be the chair. And then the co-chair would be who, whatever that region thought was a real primary concern at that time. And that could be anything from an addiction specialist to an infectious disease doctor. Uh, but that region would decide what's critical to them. Mental health could be a mental health. Expert. Right. So all the providers pretty much would be around this table, physical therapy, EMS. Public health would be sitting at this table university representatives, because we want the affiliation with universities so that their providers and their students can go out into all of these zones so that as we're training nurses and doctors, they too develop a holistic view of healthcare in the country, not just you know an urban area or wherever their school is. Um, and then we're also being able to get research in and out of that university system almost real time. So that we can start bringing evidence based practice down at the street level and under, you know, 17 years or however long it takes now.
1: What's one step that nurses can do today to educate themselves
2: or change? You know, there's something like 850 different nursing groups in this country. Our political powers are numbers. There's almost 4 million of us in this country. Um, the ANA represents less than 4% of the nurses in this country.
1: And why do you think that is?
2: Because they don't deliver a message nurses want to hear. Um, I was talking the other couple of weeks ago to a retired mucky muck with ANA, and um, she was very honest about it. The biggest mistake they made was in the 90s when they would not support staffing ratios for nurses. Um, you know, in the late 90s, there were 250,000 members of uh, the ANA. But I think a bigger mistake they made was back in the 60s when they started trying to come out with this, if you're not a bachelor's, you're not a professional nurse. A man, membership plummeted after that. And as working nurses were out in the field and they're going, why am I spending $200 a month to belong to this organization that does nothing for me? Uh, it just doesn't make sense. And they, again, they have no political uh, power. Because when I was up in Washington and I'd talk to these congressmen and senators and experts, they'd go, they'd look at the organization and go, it has no money it can contribute in to compete with the other forces and it has no membership representing any kind of voting power.
1: I completely agree. And I didn't mean to cut off your answer about the one step, but I think that's important for people to know. Nursing doesn't have one professional organization that they can go to for. Help for answers, for advocacy. So I think I I wanted you to explain that as well, so that people realize we need sure. we need that as well.
2: Well, that's why we set up this group, uh, Nurses Transforming Healthcare, was to kind of serve as an umbrella organization. We're we're not after power, money, or any of that. Our goal is to bring this discussion of actual healthcare reform and you know a system that will work in this country into the public discussion. So the more and more nurses that join us, um, again, it's, it's, you can go to nursestransforminghealthcare.org and to, even if you just sign up, we're not begging for money, although, you know, everything helps, but we're not begging for money or something like that. Everything helps. But if we could just get 10% of the nurses in this country to join us, we'd be the largest nursing organization in the world. We'd be able to walk into the International Council of Nurses we'd be able to walk into a senator's office or a congressman's office, and they'd have to sit down and listen to us.
1: Absolutely. And I will say, you say you're not begging for money, but I tell you what, money talks. And if nurses would give something, because I also, in my professional organization, um, the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists, We have the largest pack of all nursing um, organizations because we give, because we get out there and we ask. And people are sometimes turned off by that. And I, too, I'm not great at asking for money. But I will tell you, if you don't fund what's important
2: to you, things can't change. Well, you know, if that 10% joined in and everybody contributed a Starbucks lunch, (laughs) <laughs> We'd be empowered to be able to go out into the national media and actually start bringing this discussion public. Right. Other organizations, charge, whatever. Um, the other thing we're trying to reach out to are nursing organizations themselves. The inability or the unwillingness of the nurse practitioner associations to reach out and dialogue with us um, has been stunning. And I realize they're really focused on their scope of practice thing, and they're still fighting in you know 24 states to try to get uh, prescriptive authority and independent practice. But still, this is a much larger picture of empowering nurse practitioners to actually go out and do what they're trained to do, instead of having to work through these medical models that they don't like. Right. Um, but you know, your association, the um, Nurse Anesthetists Association. The, uh, how many other specialty organizations can you think of that would benefit from having an actual nursing-centered um, and nursing-led, I mean, it's not nursing-run, it's nursing-led, um, health system put in place? I think all of us would.
1: I totally agree. I love the work that you're doing, and I encourage people to uh, check out what you're doing. Oh, well, Thanks. Absolutely. Uh, the other thing I want you to talk about, uh, because I read it and I thought it was so eye opening was your Declaration of Independence for Nurses. It's amazing. I love it. Um, talk a little bit about that.
2: Well, I kind of believe, uh, what it talks about in the preamble of this, which is if you're going to, um, put out a position, you should explain to the world why you're doing this and the, Constant example of this is the Declaration of Independence, the United States wrote where it declared to the world, you know, what we're doing, why we're doing it and how we're going to do it. And so I wanted to kind of look now. You understand I wrote this 20, 20 years ago. (laughs) It's embarrassing. (laughs) Um, so I looked at the U S Declaration of Independence and I thought, you know, the wording in this is kind of brilliant. And I thought, if I could just. Take that document and change sections of it so that it was applicable to nursing. It is, it's a really well-laid-out argument of why things need to happen this way. So um, I did that, and actually I got it copyrighted, uh, except for all the parts that were written by Thomas Jefferson, which they wouldn't let me copyright. But, um, but it does lay out that, you know, we've been trusted. We're the most trusted profession in the country. Why wouldn't Americans want to trust us to lead this healthcare system? We've earned this respect. Right. You well, know, there's nothing nursing has done that's led Americans to think we're a bunch of radical socialists or communists, right? Or they know we're focused on health and healthcare. You know, I say we hold these truths to be self-evident that the profession of nursing has earned the trust and respect of their country. We have and i don't see how that's ever going to change we're we're still pretty mission driven as a profession yes um i go into then uh, all the whereases where i talk about why we're doing these things what's been the abuse and usurpation of the past why why i want to lay out that argument clearly for why nursing needs to uh become an advocate for a change in direction some of them are kind of controversial uh you know i do take on the ana for example but I speak in truth. I, I, there's nothing historically that I'm trying to warp or, or you know, move towards some kind of agenda. I'm just speaking truthfully, And then lay out what I think are the goals, how we can make those goals. Um, and hopefully nurses, as they read this, will go, especially in the whereas thing, go, yeah, you know, this is all true.
1: Where can people uh, find that and read that?
2: Well, our website should be getting it up pretty soon. Um, we're, we're having a debate because again, we don't want to be seen as, you know, gimmicky and getting, trying to get people to pay money. Um, but we want to offer the opportunity for other nurses to come in and actually become signatories uh, on this document. If you get down to the bottom, you see my signature, um, and the signature of other nurses who have joined. If we can make it a contributing thing too, where we you know, all benefit out of this, uh, I mean, if I can get a you know fifty thousand signatures on this document, that kind of makes it a lot more potent.
1: Absolutely. Uh, tell us the name of your website again.
2: Sure, nursestransforminghealthcare.org. dot org. Perfect. Uh, we're also on all the other media, which I don't use. So. I, uh,
1: <laughs> well, I, I'm with you there. <laughs> John, tell us something. What kind of uh, advice or tips would you leave for
2: nurses? I think given all the situations that are going on, you know, we're seeing increasing suicide rates, nurses leaving the bedside and not wanting to work anymore. Um, this to me is is a tragedy even as well as I understand why. If we could redirect that energy and redirect the energy of the nurses that are still staying at the bedside trying to slug this out, into an actual plan for action. Um an example, you know, we we see a lot of things like innovation meetings and hackathons and all this stuff. This stuff is all driven at the process level. And if you read Don Abidian, who was systems theorist back in the 40s (laughs) and 50s, um, he he laid it out pretty clear pretty clearly. The system determines the processes. The processes determine the outcomes. If we're all just fighting at the process level, then we're not changing the system that's going to control that level anyway. Let's go after the the big kahuna. Let's go after the system. I have a system design I think nurses will understand. I think it'll appreciate. It empowers it. It empowers public health. It empowers medicine to get out of this you know, rut they're in and be able to actually control their medical practice. So it benefits all of us as providers. It aligns the system with the values of the providers. I just think if it's something other nurses read and they could get behind, um, again, the, the more empowered we are as an organization at Nurses Transforming Healthcare, the more we're going to be able to bring this message out publicly.
1: I think that's extremely powerful. I encourage everyone to go look into what John is talking about. Um, and you work with other members, correct?
2: Oh, I have, I have brilliant partners in this. Uh, Kathleen Bartholomew has, uh done TED Talks. She's an avid writer. She's an expert in health culture. Um, a nurse practitioner in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, who's had her own independent practice for over 20 years. She's an integrative provider and of holistic health. Um, I work with another lady, Cheryl Witt, who does rural, her specialty is rural, particularly ranchers and how we can deliver health services to some of these rural areas. Uh, I work with a nurse practitioner, Beth Haney, who's a councilwoman in California, also a big member of AAN. Uh, we have grant writing expert that we write with or that we work with. Uh, so we've got a lot of really good partners, um, our think tank. Uh, always room for more if there's any real thinky nurses who want to come help us. <laughs>
1: I think uh, we're going to see nurses want to take more on as far as systems change. And I, I love what you said, you know, fixing the processes only gets you so far. You have to change the system to really improve what we're all looking at. I agree. I thank you for your time. I think what you're doing is very important work and I want
2: to continue to follow what you're doing. Thank you so much. It's It's been kind of a long struggle to... Um, try to get this out and I gave up for a while, but now I'm back.
1: I'm glad you're back.
2: Right, thanks. Thanks, Per.
1: Thanks, John. I hope to hear more from you.
2: Thanks. I hope so. Anytime.
0: Donate Your Young was produced in partnership with True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. Music by The Lighthearts. Find the show, show notes, and transcripts at DonateYourYoung.com If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. But the best thing you could do to support the show is to share it with a friend or colleague. Thank you for listening.